We're so glad that you've tuned into our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jennifer Akers, the Associate Worship Pastor here at Rolling Hills. We're currently in our series, The Greatest Adventure. And today we're in Exodus 20, when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. We hope and pray that God teaches you something new about himself through today's message. Well, good morning. Thank you for saying good morning back. I appreciate that. Um, It's really gonna be a great day. I'm really glad that you're all here. My name is Nick Allen, and I get to be the campus pastor of this location at Rolling Hills. And if you're joining us for the first time, I do hope I get a chance to say hello to you this morning and and meet you for the first time. Um, I'll be here, I'll I'll be here all day. and find my way uh, to the back of the room as, as you leave this morning just to say hello and tell you a little bit more about the life of our church. We're in the middle of a series called The Greatest Adventure. You just saw this guy trekking up through the woods, um, knowing that Israel had a, a very different trek out of the land of Egypt, the land of slavery. And so we're gonna find our way to Exodus chapter 20 this morning, which if you're familiar with Old Testament scriptures at all, you will recognize that as the place where God initially gave the 10 commandments. Okay, so that's, that's where we're going today. When we last left Israel, um, they were camped out at a place called Rephidim and they had just experienced um, thirst. Uh, they had no water. And so God provided water from a rock. Moses struck it and a, a, a stream flowed where they could have safe drinking water. Um, And right on the heels of just being given safe drinking water, uh, a a neighboring nation, the Amalekites, decided to attack these wandering people. And and so the story that we read last in Exodus chapter 17 is Moses standing on a hillside while his people went to battle in the valley below. And as long as he had his hands up, they were victorious. But you can imagine what that was like as his hands and arms grew a little bit tired. And so these two fellows named Aaron and Hur stood on the side of him and held up his arms so that Israel could be victorious in that moment. Well, their journey continues today from Rephidim to the base of Sinai, Mount Sinai, where we know that God delivered the Old Testament law to his people. Several years ago, um, my little boy was only one. He's eight years old now, almost nine, and so we're, we're, we're literally going back in time. So seven years ago, we decided to take our kids um, on our very first adventure to Walt Disney World, and oh mercy, we learned a lot. If you need some help planning those kinds of trips, we can tell you. Um, this is Lily Kate and Nor Blake, who are now 14 and 13 years old, um, meeting princesses. Um, one like trick of the trade, if you wanna go and eat, eat food with these people, do not choose dinner. It's a lot more expensive, and your kids are not gonna eat all that food. Go to breakfast, it's a lot better. So there we are having breakfast with Snow White. And the thing, like midway through the morning, Susan and I realized something about our girls. Like what we realized that they don't see this, um, spoiler alert, as a woman dressed up in a costume. Like literally grown up Halloween right here. They don't look at her and think, this is a woman who looks an awful lot like Snow White. At, I don't know, five and six years old, they literally looked at her as if she was the woman from the cartoon. Like total disbelief in any sort of suspended reality. Like they just thought this is the real deal. And these women, this like, I don't know what Walt Disney World is paying them. I do know what they're charging us, but I don't know what these ladies are being paid, but they are phenomenal. 
unbelievable actresses who literally continue the character no matter what your child throws at them. Any question that you can think of to ask these women dressed up like Disney princesses, they will respond in that character. No matter what your child makes up on the spot, they will never break character for a moment. Lily Kate, my oldest in the moment, looked at Snow White and said, how do you talk to the animals? This girl did not miss a beat before looking right at my daughter and saying, you don't talk to the animals? Who do you get to clean your cottage for you? (laughs) And it was there in that moment, I think Lily Kate is hanging on to those words, no judgment, baby, I love you. Um, (laughs) It's like you're still waiting for some raccoons to show up and make your bed. (laughs) It's probably not gonna happen. These ladies never break character, ever. And and when you talk about the Old Testament law or the New Testament Jesus, regardless of what the world tells you, regardless of the questions that you throw at him, I can promise us all this, that the God of this universe start to finish, no matter what interpretation you have of him, no matter what questions you have about him, no matter the discrepancies that you see in the passages of scripture that you in our human minds can't necessarily comprehend, the God of this universe has never, ever, 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 ever broken character. He's always been exactly who he is. So this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn over to Exodus chapter 20. Hint, I'm going to start back at chapter 19 just for a hot second to get us into these pages. But this is what's going to happen. We're going to go through this Old Testament law, and you're going to see the character of God leap out from the page and be reminded of how good he's always been and how good he intends to stay. The start of chapter 19 says, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt. We're still new in the journey. Like, it's only been a couple of months. When they entered into Rephidim, it was only the 15th day of the second month, and now we're on the first day of the third month. It's just two weeks after that whole water and the rock experience. It's just a couple of days even after the battle of the Amalekites. They're literally still tired, and they're making the next part of their journey. On that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert from the mountain. And what you know is going to happen is that God is going to call Moses to go to the top of the mountain. He's going to set up a barrier that the people can't pass through. They're going to stay at the base of the mountain, and God's going to call Moses up, and he's going to deliver to him the law that he's supposed to give to the people. It says, then Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. He goes on in verse 19, chapter 19, verse six to say, these are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. It's important that we know right on the outset that these words that we encounter in scripture, they literally do come from the mouth of God. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. These are the words that would go with them into their new cities, the cities of promised land. 
These are the words that would help them establish themselves as a nation, that they would understand how to be governed and how to live and how to execute the the general guardrails of their lives. These are the words that they would cling to when they're attacked by surrounding nations. These are the words that they would understand when kings and priests and prophets would lead them astray. These are the words that they would cling to when they wanted to return to God. These are the very words that they would rebel against and would ultimately, because of their rebellion, fast forward through the Old Testament lead to division and ultimately exile. These are the words that they would continue to read and to recite, words that would offer them hope and peace as they waited for the Messiah. These are the words that would ultimately put on skin and become Jesus who would save his people. These are the words. And so in Exodus chapter 20, if you have your Bibles with you and it's like a physical copy of the word and you're sitting there reading it in front of you, I invite you to grab it and read along. If not, you can follow along on a mobile app or you can pay attention to the words as they flash across screens. It says this, and God spoke all these words. These are the the words that that God himself spoke to us. You know, when I grew grew up in, in church, we, we did this whole, in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's word, would you stand? You guys maybe did that from time to time. Sometimes we, we throw that back there. We kick it. I love that. In, in, in the book of Nehemiah, Ezra the scribe stands up to read the words of God, and it doesn't say that they stood in attention very long because ultimately they fell on their faces at the hearing of God's word. I don't care whether we stand or sit or lie down. Please don't fall asleep. But listen, James 1.22 says so clearly, do not be hearers of the word only, and so deceive yourselves. You can stand in attention all you want. Fall on your face if you like. Listen to whatever these words say all day long, but unless you plan to keep them, none of the words matter. These words are God's words, and and so stand, sit, kneel, lie down, regardless of how you hear them. Don't be hearers of the word only and deceive yourself. Do what they say. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Command number one, you shall have no other gods before me. That word before literally means above. It means over. It it means in addition to. Listen, there is never, ever, ever been a moment in our lives where we can say God and. Faith and. Belief and. Jesus and. It's always God or nothing. It's always God only, Jesus only, faith alone. You shall have no other gods before me, above me, beside me, over me, in addition to me. He is it. It says in verse four, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations. We get a little upset that God's gonna punish three to four generations later, but where does the love go? Thousands and thousands of generations after who love me and keep Listen, abide by, follow, take in my commandments. They literally were only three months out from a 430-year stay in a nation with one image after another, one idol after another, one little G God after another, and they are fresh out of a place where they have seen all manner of idol worship for their entire lives. And God's saying, you guys will be different. Don't do that. Remember what you saw back in Egypt? Remember the idols, remember the temples, remember the worship, remember the graved, carved images. 
You're not going to do that to worship me. You're going to worship me the way I desire to be worshipped. It says in verse 7, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. I grew up thinking that you weren't supposed to say God in like a like when you stubbed your toe, or when someone shocked you with some crazy news, or you couldn't even say gosh, because that was just like you were trying to substitute the fact that you were otherwise going to say God. Taking the Lord's name in vain had more to do with what you said than ultimately how you lived. This idea of misusing the name of God is ultimately misrepresenting his name in the world. It's not just how you say it, it's the way that you live it and whether or not the, the, the manner in which you live out there creates for him a reputation worthy of the consistent character that he is. The reason people that see inconsistencies in the character of God isn't because of God. The reason people see inconsistencies in the character of God is ultimately because of us. It says in, in verse eight, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day, all the way back to creation, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. And if you want to take a whole Bible study that has to do with where we are in the world today, you can underline that word foreigner. It means sojourner. There has always, always, always been in the word of God for the people of God, a provision for the immigrant and the refugee and the traveler. There has always been a place for the nations and we as a people of God have to approach the rest of the nations around the world as if there is a seat for them at this table and our tables. It says honor in verse 12, your father and mother. I like this one. I'm just going to turn my attention over here real quick. Y'all do a good job, but you know, we can always stand to improve. I'm just going to, maybe you want to underline this for a second and kind of just like circle it and draw a little heart over it and, and like just write my name next to it if you need to. <laughs> like honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That word honor is literally about the glory of God. It means to make heavy. On second thought, please don't write my name next to anything that says make heavy. Um, <laughs> but there ought to be some weight to this relationship, um, the, the parent-child relationship, and, and not just the parent-child relationship, but the authority in our lives relationships. There's, there's, there's a weight, there's a, there's, a, there's a gravity to the relationships that we have with other people, and there's a respect that ought to come from that and then the you shall not, there's verse 13, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his donkey or his ox or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And these, if you grew up in a church like I did when you were a little kid, somebody gave you some points and stars on a little tiny chart if you could memorize those 10 commands, those words from God. This law that somehow seems to matter 
scholars have worked real hard to organize these for us through the years. They've, they've worked real hard to, for us to see that there's an organization and there's a pattern behind the Ten Commandments. We talk about the first and the second tables when we come to the Ten Commandments. And the first and second tables are the first four commands, which have to do with our relationship with God and our love for Him. And the next six commands, which starting with honoring your parents, have to do with the way that we interact with other people. So the first and second table tell us about our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationships with all people. Then you get an organizational tool that tells you, well, it's the, the first and second tablets. We just gonna split it down the middle, five and five, and that's an easy thing to do because the first five commands literally spell out specifically the name of Yahweh. His name is mentioned in those commands. Even when we get to the horizontal relationship about honoring your mother and father, why? It's so we can live a long life and prosper in the land. The Lord, Yahweh, our deliverer, our redeemer, our creator, our restorer, in the land that he is giving you, the way to connect to the covenant promise, these first five commands mention creator, almighty, sustainer, God. The next five don't. And and so you get these tables. The, The other way that you can organize them is by writing something that seems like in addition to them because if we're not gonna have any other gods, the, the, the negative, the restriction, there's a requirement that you can glean from that. Having no other gods means worship God alone. <laughs> Do not make a graven image means worship God in the way that he prescribes for you in scripture. Honor your mother and father means don't disrespect or disobey them in any way. Do not murder means respect and value human life. There's a way that you can look through these Ten Commandments and understand that the restriction is also a requirement. Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting with verse 2, or 1 says this, now Israel, Deuteronomy literally means second law, and it's the regiving and the retelling of the law and the explaining of the law and the understanding of the law for people. Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Verse 2, do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. I would venture to say that every single problem that you and I have with the Ten Commandments. Hold on. I would venture to say that every single problem that you and I have with all of Scripture, I I would venture to say that every single problem that you and I have with the, the, the character and the nature of God has to do with the things that we've added or subtracted. It has to do with the things that we wish this book didn't say or the things that we wish this book did say instead of what this book actually says. We would always, it's our sin nature, rather interpret this word, what it means to fit our flesh, rather than submitting our flesh to what it actually means. So why the law? Why would we, a couple thousand years later, still be talking about these Old Testament words? Why would we still elevate these Old Testament stories? Like here in this church, why would we continue to talk about these Old Testament characters and, and, and tell these Old Testament stories when, when we know what happened on the cross, when we understand that there's a New Testament, a new covenant that follows, when we understand what Jesus has done for us? There are churches out there, you can find them, maybe I'll just give you some recommendations, who are literally abandoning and leaving behind 
all of the Old Testament and just focusing on the new. Why in the world would we, it's in your notes this morning, why would we still continue to focus our attention and lean in this direction? Why the law? The very same reason as the curse, the presence of sin. It still exists, ladies and gentlemen. We're still out there running amok and living life any manner of how we want to live it. And if we're to better understand the nature and the character of God who has been the same yesterday, today, and always and forever, never, ever breaking character, we gotta start right back at the beginning. And there's a lot we can grab from these words, and there's a lot of truth that we can understand from this law. Why do we still study it? Because of the curse. It's the presence of sin. Psalm chapter 14 says this, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, all have turned away. All. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that might make you defensive for a moment because you feel good. And you certainly feel good when you compare yourself to other people because there's some bad folks out there. The scripture says there's no one good, not even one. And after you're done being defensive, it ought to make you feel relieved. Because it's not like you're the only one struggling. It's not like you're the only one who has difficulty. It's not like you're the only one failing. It's all of us. I didn't really plan on pausing here, but I'm going to pause here. It's all of us. So regardless of your sin, regardless of your shame, regardless of your struggle, regardless of your temptation, regardless of the difficulty, don't let the enemy whisper into your ear that you're the only or somehow that you're the worst. Don't, don't believe that lie. Don't, 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 don't listen to that line that says you're somehow the only because scripture says all of us are exactly where you are. 3.23, if we're gonna take the old and the new and see how they fit, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The idea of sin in the Old Testament was always a word picture of archery, of missing the mark, of seeing the bullseye, but never, ever, ever being able to come close to fitting it. And so when Paul interpreted these words for the church in Rome, helping them understand what sin was, he compared it to the idea of missing the mark. And no matter how good your aim is, no matter how good your shot is, no matter how hard you work, you will never hit it. It's all of us. We've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And you're like, but I'm good. I obey most of this, right? Like, like I literally haven't killed anybody. I haven't cheated on my wife. I, I literally don't take things that don't belong to me. And, and I'm, I'm doing my best not to give a false testimony and to lie. Our whole lives are a lie. Let me introduce you to my friend Instagram. Come on. <laughs> we do. But I'm really, really good compared to says in James chapter 2 verse 10 whoever keeps the whole law all of it like you do a real good job keeping almost every single word not just the 10 commandments but all 613 of them like you're really coming far along the journey of keeping this law and yet stumbles in just one point just one is guilty of all guilty of breaking all of it 
we, we want to measure in, the, in this life and say, oh, but I'm a good person. According to what standard? According to what standard? Jesus goes into detail about that in his Sermon on the Mount. His longest discord is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. He says, you have heard it said, do not murder. That's right. Oh, Jesus, he's, he's quoting Exodus chapter 20 where the law clearly says, do not murder. But then he says, I tell you, if you've been angry at your brother or sister, then you've already committed murder. Man, <laughs> I guess that one's not one that I've followed too well. Do not commit adultery, Jesus says. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Well, I tell you that if you've lusted after someone else, you're guilty of adultery. Man, he just messed up that whole track record that we have. If you're guilty of just one part of it, you're guilty of it all. Why the law? We, we need the law. We need the words. We, we need the understanding of what our sin is. We need to know that there is a, a criteria of, of living that comes from someone other than us. Otherwise, we're all just left up to our own devices to make it up as we go along. And we are living in a morally relativistic age where people are literally determining for themselves what their right is and their wrong is and their truth is. And God's word says something very, very different, and it's a gift to us, not a monkey on our back to burden us. Why the law? We need to understand the presence of sin. When I was doing kids ministry for years at Rolling Kills and doing student ministry for years in this church and lots of other churches, I knew that on any given Sunday, on any given opportunity, I'm getting ready to go preach a camp this week in Kentucky, there's this moment where you kind of know as a communicator, I could get every single person in this room of all these children to raise their hands and repeat some words after me and check some boxes and get them in some water to dunk them and say that they're baptized believers in Jesus Christ. That would not be salvation, that would be manipulation. And a kid will raise their hand, a young adult will raise their hand, even a burdened older adult will raise their hand and want to come to Christ for any number of reasons. But until they have taken their want in one hand and measured it against their need in the other, the understanding of the sin in our life, that means we need forgiveness and that there has to be a sacrifice in order to pay the price for us. It's only when we understand our need for salvation because of the weight of our sin have we truly encountered the forgiveness that only comes from Christ? We, we need the law because it helps us understand the curse and the presence of sin in our lives. Why the law? Well, the same reason as the deliverance. What, what God had done to bring Israel out of Egypt, the same reason as the deliverance. We've said this all series in order to make a distinction to separate his people and to make them different. Exodus chapter 11, we went over this. He says when he sends the death angel, this is why, like not even a dog is gonna bark against you. You've painted blood on the door frames of your house and the death angel is gonna pass over you and not smite your firstborn. Like this is going to happen in order that you can understand that the Lord makes a distinction. There is a difference between you and Egypt. The law is given to us for the exact same purpose at the conclusion of the Old Testament. Why do we still read this Old Testament? Because at the conclusion of it, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 18, the Lord says, on the day that I act, they, Israel, this, this will be my treasured possession. I will spare them. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction, the difference between the righteous and the wicked, those who serve God and those who do not. 
This law has always been, these words, these stories, these pages have always been to set us apart and to make a distinction. We ought to be able to look at one another and say, I see in you the character and, and the nature of God, not because you're special, but because you're spared. You're forgiven and you're marked. There, there's something different about you. I see in you the, the character of God, and there will be moments, there will always continue this side of heaven to be moments when you and I break character, where we step out and slip up and, and miss the mark of living out the character and the nature of God, but we ought to also, because of salvation, be able to look at each other and see in one another somehow the character and the glory of God on display. The, the law was always there to help us make a difference, a distinction between us and others. Why the law? The same reason as the covenant. That covenant that God made, gave to Abraham, that promise that he made to him to point to Christ and prioritize the promise. Galatians chapter 3 tells us why these words from Exodus are so important. In verse 18 it says, for the inheritance, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it is no longer depending on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. It was a babysitter. Actually, that word literally means tutor. You guys have had a tutor before. You've hired a tutor before. You solicited. I had a tutor in high school. Her name was Caroline Jurong, and she taught me calculus and how to drive a manual transmission, um, both of which I have completely forgotten since high school. <laughs> but she was the tutor. This whole understanding in Greek and Roman culture was the idea of this guardian was a tutor. And wealthy families in these communities, they had guardians, literally like really well-trusted servants. And when boys and girls were growing up, they were literally not allowed to leave the house without one of these servants to go and to govern. It was, it was au pairs, like they had somebody come and live with them and take care of their kids for them. I know you're like, oh, where can I get me one of those? Um, that guardian was to literally make sure that you were safe until you were old enough or mature enough to understand the life that God had for you. You get that? The guardian was our, our tutor, our, our, our babysitter. The law was our guardian until Jesus so that we could literally be justified by faith. Ultimately, this law pointed people to the fact that they couldn't fulfill it and that they needed grace, which makes it really so very odd that we as believers today want to use this law as a way to coerce and a way to punish and a way to persuade others. If reading my Bible, if looking at these 10 commands, if looking at any part of this character of God and the nature of the stories that we read, if it causes me, and another pastor in our community just kind of quoted these words, Scott Saucy says, if the Bible causes me to scrutinize others more than it causes me to scrutinize myself, I'm not reading it right. I'm just not reading it right. Keeping God's word never means weaponizing God's word. It, it never means that we use it to attack others. How we read it matters. And I, I, I read the word of God like a white guy, a middle-aged one from America in the South. That's, that's when we begin to understand that the way that we read it matters. Am I reading this through a Middle Eastern lens? 
Am I reading this through a minority lens? Am I reading this through one of the many peoples worldwide all over the planet who have been oppressed and persecuted and abused sometimes by this? I have to read this according to what God intended it to be and not necessarily what I would like to make it. So, so how do we approach this law since Jesus? Like, like, what do we do with the law? What do we do regarding it since we have Christ? In him, in Jesus, all of the law's demands are fulfilled so that you and I can be redeemed. These commands all through the Old Testament were always second person singular. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. You shall not commit a murder. And the understanding and the reading of this scripture through a Jewish lens was that Moses was speaking directly to the the male heads of the household and that they were to take that word and transmit it to the rest of their family. Moses was the mediator between God and the people and the men, the leaders, the elders in their families and their clans were the mediators between Moses and all of the rest of the people. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, that Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, until the very end, we're still living in that before the heaven and earth disappear kind of time. Not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is uh, accomplished. It's as if we're looking at a bucket with holes, and no matter how much water we pour in, it's all seeping out. But Christ came and filled up the holes so he could fill up the bucket. He's the only way to fulfill that law. No matter what we do, no matter how we live, it will never take care of the problem. In redemption, in the redemption that we have through Jesus and through Jesus alone, Christ He compels us to something greater and honestly harder than following all of this Old Testament scripture. There was a religious leader who came up to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. I often, in my mind, equate him with the rich young ruler, and I'll say a young religious leader, like like, like a millennial just came up and so sassy tried to trap Jesus. No, it's just a religious leader. He might have been very old, we don't know. A religious leader, a, a scribe, he probably was a little bit older, came up to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, and he wanted him to sum up all of the law and tell him of the 613 that we got from the Torah and all of the other commands that came from the Pharisees after that, what is the most important. You know what it is. Jesus quoted the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then he gives him a bonus. He throws him when he says, hey, I'll also quote Leviticus for you. The second command is just like it. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. He summed it all up. He said all the law, all the Ten Commandments, all the law, everything that follows, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Nothing matters more than the first four commands, how we love God. Nothing matters more than those next six commands, how we love and relate to others. Romans chapter 13 sums it up. It says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. We just read those. They're part of the 10. You shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Paul says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, love does no harm to a neighbor. 
You don't kill somebody you love. You don't cheat on somebody that you love. You don't steal from somebody that you love. You don't disrespect and disregard someone that you truly love. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. It's the greater command, and honestly, be honest, the harder one. In regard to the Old Testament, whether we're looking at the Shema in Deuteronomy or, or, or the, the law that was given to us in Leviticus to love other people or the summary that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 22 and what Paul reaffirmed for us in Romans chapter 13, in regards to both the old and new, the character continues. The response is to always love everyone, always. It's what we call our motto at church, this idea of love everyone always. There's just no out to that. There's just no addendum to that. There's no other. Love everyone always unless. There is no extra to that. It's just love everyone always. James sums it up to the brother of Jesus. He writes chapter 2 verse 8, if you really keep the royal law, y'all didn't know we were going to circle back to princesses, did you? I didn't just show you that picture because they're cute. (laughs) You are very cute, by the way. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. God never breaks character. Regardless of what we read in these Ten Commands or the other 603 commands or the rest of the stories or the rest of the pages. It has always, always been about love. And it's fun that James called it the royal law because in these words and in our understanding, there's only two ways to become royal. You have to be born into it or marry into it. You have to come from it or you have to unite with it. There we go. Girls, you're not royal because you come from me, sadly. Harry, William, you know, all those people. But because you get to connect with Jesus. Exodus chapter 4, right at the beginning of this whole exit, God, God looks at Moses and he says, Say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. The responsibility of the son was to live out the character and the nature of the father. Israel's identity as son is what made them connected to God. Not their ability to keep this law, not their ability to follow these rules. It was always about the relationship that they had to God. King God, high priest God overwhelming prophet God. Pictures of the Old Testament Hebrew Torah often have a crown etched or embroidered or drawn on top because these are the words from our king. As sons and daughters, we are princes and princesses. Wild to think about, right? Who ought to live out the character of God. And the way we do that is by loving other people. Incidentally, James chapter 2, where he says, if you keep the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Go ahead and read it. 
it's all about favoritism and, and discrimination. There, there's probably never a better time in history for us to kind of read and digest those words, to understand as a people what it means. It may be the harder command, but it's the only one that matters. Love everyone always. That's how we relate to him, and that's how we relate to others. And if we want to understand the law that God gave, we will love. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for the chance to be in this place. Father, my prayer for us as a people is that we would understand every day what it means to love others. That we would not get so caught up with the patterns and the plans of this world that tempt to divide us and to discriminate against us, but ultimately it would be a pattern where we learn first and foremost what it means to be a people who love, not breaking the character, but allowing your character to be displayed to the world through the way that we live. Help us to love the way that we've been loved in your son Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, where you can find great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on what's happening and ways you can connect. We're thankful for you.